This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hey, this is Allison. Just a quick heads up before we start. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get to talk to Miriam at her office at a genuine publishing company. However, that does mean that there are genuine publishing company sound effects in the background. Uh, there's a copy machine and a janitor and rich soundscape. So excuse us for the background noise and uh, enjoy this high fidelity experience. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Graphic Novel to Come, Graphic Novel TK, the podcast about the comics publishing industry and how it works. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. We are excited to have an awesome guest today, uh, Miriam Miller, who's going to tell us all about rights. Miriam, it's so great to have you here. We're excited to talk about rights. Can you tell us who you are how you got into publishing and how you got from getting into publishing to the job that you have today. Sure. I'm Miriam Miller. I'm the senior subsidiary rights manager at Holiday House Books. I have been working in publishing since about 2010. And my first voyage into the industry was actually when I was a senior in high school. I don't know if you know this, Gina. No, I don't know anything <laughs> about it. Tell, um, us, tell us more. So I'm from Pennsylvania, and in Pennsylvania, every high school senior has to do this project where you kind of do a mini internship for two months. And um, I had this old family friend who had been giving me early versions of picture books and um, early versions of all these kinds of exciting um, kids' books for my whole life. And so I reached out to Neil Porter at Roaring Brook Press to see if I could come work for him for a couple of months. And so that is um, what I did when I was in high school. And I think I really caught the bug from, from doing that. And so I started um, when I was in college, I did some literary agency internships and eventually got an assistant position there, kind of realized that I wanted to be on the publishing house side of things and kind of fell into the rights part of of the industry, which is, you know, rights is really niche um, as far as publishing goes, even for our tiny industry. Um, but it really um, works well, I think, with what I studied in school and you know I always had an interest in foreign language and foreign literature and rights is sort of as as close as you can get to that in what we do. Can you tell us a little about what rights are? Uh, so if someone is just like hello I am an author and I wrote this book when you are a person who's a, a rights manager what sort of things are you actually working with in respect to the book? The way I like to think about rights for books is it's this way of extending the life of any given title. Um, So when you're thinking about all the different ways your book can exist in the world or your story even beyond the book. Obviously you would like it to be like a nice printed copy that has covers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of like the the first step of the book. Yeah. Although for something like a novel, you could have an audio version that wouldn't necessarily come any way but digitally, and, and it could still be a really nice version. Yeah. Um, and audio, so audio rights are part of your job to mm-hmm. negotiate. Audio, 
translation, of course, and, you know, even sometimes film that can happen. Um, book club, like if you remember going to scholastic book fairs when you're a kid, that falls under rights. Too. Yeah. I think a lot of cartoonists have a really hard time getting, it's such a big term that gets thrown around a lot. I think people have a hard time understanding what falls under that umbrella. And it, and it sounds like part of what you're saying is that it actually includes basically every part of publishing involves rights. It's just that we only talk about some parts of it in terms of rights. But technically when you are, uh, please, please correct me. <laughs> if I, I'm actually want to know if I'm understanding this correctly. So like technically when I sell my comic, mm-hmm. or no, let me rephrase that. When I sign with a publisher mm-hmm. who's going to publish my comic, they now have the world like the world of the u.s or whatever rights to publish my books so that's the first rights that i'm right. giving to somebody and then yeah. there are and further the necessary right. rights that you have to give to yeah, a publisher like, like yeah. you, you can't be a publisher and publish anything before yeah. so people who say don't sign any of your rights away it's like okay well some of them <laughs> yeah so yeah. we call what i do is called subsidiary rights so the the kind of big original rights to publish and you know i think most publishing contracts line it up as print, publish, and sell the book. Those are going to your U.S. publisher. And then there's subsidiary rights that are in kind of a later section of the contract usually. And that's what someone in my position has to work with. And it really is this extension. So it can be like everything from book fairs to radio plays and films and book clubs and first serial mm-hmm. and excerpts and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. So first serial is like when, you know, Mindy Kaling's new book of essays come out and the New Yorker publishes a couple for you to read before that that's considered first serial. I don't know if we need to explain <laughs> the different no, kinds please. of rights. The entire existence of this podcast is to laboriously explain a bunch of really obscure nonsense. So please, if <laughs> at any time. Uh, I think I'm jumping around Gina's questions a little bit here, but um, so as a subsidiary rights person, like, are you only working with uh, books that are within the company that you're working at? Are you working with other publishers to help them out? Like, what does that mean, practically speaking? I am only working with books that the publishing company that I work for is publishing, and I'm not even working with every single book on our publishing list. I'm only working on the books where the authors and illustrators have have signed to us the subsidiary rights um, that we can then license. Yeah, Miriam's like the in-house rights person yes. at Holiday House. So she works here at this company that we are recording on we their table. We're literally sitting in right now. <laughs> and uh, works with specifically with the books that they publish only mm-hmm. and you know medium to large size publishing houses will have a rights person probably on staff who is dedicated to just selling rights all the time yep uh, so can you tell us about just like what you do day to day like on a normal day like what is your actual job what is involved <laughs> with it um one of the things that i like a lot about my job is that it kind of touches all the other parts of the publishing house. Um, So I work with pretty much everyone um, in order to do my job. And I kind of do a little bit of everything also. 
So I am doing everything from kind of staying on top of the production schedule to find out where our materials for the books are. You know, I read all the books that I'm trying to sell. So, and talking to the editors about their perspective on the books and, you know, how, how they expect something maybe to change over the course of their editorial process. And then I'm getting the materials that our marketing department has created and our publicists are working on. And I kind of gather that and I package it all together and I send it out to my contacts um, to kind of promote our book um, to foreign audiences or audio audiences, not so much for graphic novels. That's not a good medium for them. But, you know, so, so we can talk about it in terms of, of foreign publishing translation rights. Um, so I'm promoting our books out there, getting them into the world. So when you say your contacts, like what kinds of other people are you working with outside of your publisher? One thing that makes translation rights tough is that I'm here in New York most of the time. You don't speak all the languages in the world. I I don't know. I don't know. I could lie to you, but <laughs> it's true. Um, I don't speak all the languages in the world. So what I have are agents, sub-agents, um, who work for us representing Holiday House books in countries we we usually say territories around the world and they're on the ground in you know all these far-flung places they have really strong relationships with foreign publishers that they can speak to in their own languages and so I have very strong relationships with our agents and I'm mostly sending things to them and then they kind of feed them out to publishers in their territories. Do you want to know why we say territory? I mean, I kind of do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the reason is because country is too specific when we're really talking about languages. So for instance, my Spanish agents were here visiting yesterday. They are based in Spain. They live in Barcelona. That's where their office is. But they do Spanish representation throughout the world because there are so many places that speak Spanish that are not in Spain. So rather than saying like a country name, we would go with this kind of Spanish territory. Well, I know a lot of the time when I'm in contracts and I'm looking at a lot of them, it says North American rather than like America specifically, Mm because it's actually America and Canada a lot of the time. So the agents that you're talking to, are they just at an agency the way my agent is, is at an agency? Do they have specific publishers that they're working with? Is it kind of like you're trying to get the attention to somebody who's then going to shop it around to a bunch of different people? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So sub-agents and book agents are different things. Oh, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But let's like, explain to the podcast people also. I mean, that's, it, it, yes, please. Yeah. I kind of know, but I would like to know more. <laughs> So a book agent will work with one author to get them a book deal, probably in the main territory they work with. Most of the people that we're talking to on this podcast that will be like U.S. and Canada Mm -hmm. or will be like world English. But a sub-agent. Foreign sub-agents, they um, represent the lists of specific, in this case, U.S. publishers. And they have specific lists that they're working on. And... um, they are taking what I send them and they're working with, you know, all of the people that they know 
um, in publishing houses in wherever, whatever language they work in to match up our books to certain people's lists and kind of be that person that is saying, oh, you know, I think actually this book would work really well on your list. And I also can help um, facilitate that if I know, oh, this editor in Germany really loves this author, really loves this kind of story. I think we should really try to push this book with them. You know, and we'll have conversations that are sort of about where a book might sit best. So if you have a sub-agent in China, they might be a sub-agent for Holiday House, but also work with a few other publishers Mm -hmm. as well. And their job is basically to go around to all the publishers in China and be like, hello, publishers in China, you should publish all of the books that I am representing from all these different places. Mm -hmm. Do these sub-agents tend to have like a specialty, like mostly children's books or mostly nonfiction, or is it more just with a relationship? Is it more based on the publisher? Is it more based on like the kind of book? It depends. A lot of it depends on the territory also and kind of the size. There are definitely some sub-agents that do more kids' lists. Some do more on the adult side. Some maybe specialize in nonfiction. Um, There are a couple that specialize in graphic novels. But for the most part, it's kind of the the relationships that rights people and their sub-agents have. And, you know, we might talk about what lists make sense for someone to do. Are there things that are different with selling graphic novel rights than picture books and prose, which I know you've also worked on? Yes, as I think is probably true for every aspect of working with graphic novels. The biggest difference is the amount of time they take to make. (laughs) So where, you know, a picture book, people might hear about it at the time that it gets acquired by the publishing house and then buzz can start to build from like a marketing and publicity standpoint pretty much right away. And that fairly rapidly can translate into rights deals or, you know, various other kinds of tangible outcomes for the book. But with graphic novels, um, they just take so long to put together because they're so intricate. There's so much art. There's so much of the story and the development that really has to go together with the text and the art. Um, they just take a really long time to put together. So you want to wait and make sure everything is in a good place before you start bringing it out into the world. Yeah, and you said that there's some sub-agents that you've worked with who have a graphic novel specialty as part of what they do. Is that because they like have relationships with the graphic novel specific publishers in other places or like what's what's involved in them having a specialty i think this is another place where you see um similarities throughout the graphic novel and comics world which is that it's a really tight-knit community of people that really really love this medium and so there are some sub-agents out there that have a really strong affinity for graphic novels specifically and who really know um, the people with specific graphic novel lists around the world. So can you kind of like just completely walk us through this process? Like you said that a lot of what you do with your job is kind of preparing packets to send out of things that sub-agents can pitch. So you know, if that's the first step, like pulling together something that's like a, a manuscript or a full PDF of a book, like what happens next after that? You send it to the sub-agent and then... Um, so 
I send it to them and I tell them why it's really great and why, they, like, in what ways they should be pushing it and promoting it to um, publishers in their territory. And I keep updating them with any good publicity that comes our way, any news that we get in about the book. And that is how the beginning part of the rights process happens throughout most of the year. There are two big international book fairs. On the kids' side, Bologna in Italy happens every year in the spring. And in the fall, Frankfurt Book Fair happens um, around October every year. There's also a specific comics festival in Angoulême, the London Book Fair, which is kind of more adult rights. Um, but those are rights-focused international book fairs. And so we go out there, uh, and, and that's when I get to see all the publishers in person and talk about our books. And, you know, it's kind of another just another forum to really sit down face to face with people and tell them about our books. So that ends up being um, very important kind of moments in the year. So once we convince someone to buy a book, um, they have a good understanding of the title. They know it's going to sit well on, you know, their list. And then we do a licensing contract. So pretty much um, a similar kind of contract to what the author is originally signing up with their U.S. publishing house. Um, we're going to do a a license of, um, say, the French rights to this this French publisher who's adding it to their, their list. Yeah, so you have a contract. Yes. So how does that work with the author? Like, where is it useful for authors to get involved in this? I always like to let authors know about any kind of rights deals that are happening for their book because it's really exciting and it's um, it's definitely exciting yeah I think it's just um like a fun way of really seeing your audience grow into maybe somewhere that you haven't been before or someplace that you know you never imagined seeing your book in a bookstore there and to know that that is going to happen I think is really fun for people and we want to also make sure of course that authors are going to be happy with the licensed editions that we're talking about like you were saying you want to be sure it has a cover and it has that they're not like we're going to take out this last chapter or right. that's fine isn't it we, we decided that the end would actually be better if he didn't die yeah. but authors can kind of get involved in the process um like you know you sign the contract and they might not it might not be a situation where authors are just like hello Japan, you are publishing this book. I someday will see it. It might be a situation where they, uh, with the contract you've negotiated, have a little more involvement with that. Yeah, sometimes. I think uh, it can depend on both the author and the foreign publisher. Sometimes our licensees abroad are really interested in doing interviews with with the authors and getting them to help do promotions or... I've even seen people get original art to, um, you know, use, use for the cover. For, exactly. Sometimes for the cover. That that is something 
that's kind of interesting about working in rights is that the you learn a lot about um, what kinds of covers work in different markets because it is not the same. Um, it's probably slightly less true for graphic novels. Sometimes they do need to change it just, um, you know, the trim size for what's going to fit on a bookshelf in a bookstore in China could be different than the way our bookstores are physically laid out here. So they have to change to the trim size of the book in order to sell it in a store. Things that you wouldn't necessarily think about can actually be, you know, really big points of conversation <laughs> when you're talking about rights. I'm admittedly thinking about the like eight billion different Harry Potter covers, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah, yes. which all had very different tone from each other right. in a lot of ways. And uh, that's all about the market, what works. And especially I think people are very sensitive about the children's book market in all of these different places because of just the way think people think about kids' books everywhere is so different. Um, and so the design of the book becomes really important in that context. So money. <laughs> is, money, about money. money is always is obviously involved here in some way. Whenever you're doing a rights deal, anything from a film deal to an audio deal to, a, I don't know, radio play or for serial or rights, is that something that an author should be expecting to see you know, perhaps I will get $50 or is it something where an author should be like, I have made back my entire advance and more like what, what's kind of the scale that you look at and like, what is like a really good rights success look like on that? Oh, that's complicated. (laughs) Um, Because the answer is that it's always different. Everything is a unique case something like first serial you're probably gonna see not a ton of money in the kids side especially i think the the adult market for first serial is still a little more robust but it's something that's been rather quiet on the kids side recently it could also all of everything i'm saying could change also i should put in that major caveat i mean something that i think is also pretty consistent across various parts of publishing, not just rights. But if you're an author who's already well-known, who's won some awards, who's a bestseller, then you can expect that your rights will, you know, be recognized as more highly valued in other areas besides just the U.S. But you can also probably expect that the same thing to be true of your um, advances in the U.S. market. So here's a different way of thinking about this then. And I, again, please correct me if I've misunderstood <laughs> this. So my understanding is that if your publisher is negotiating for these kinds of subrights for you, mm-hmm. any money that is involved in that basically ends up being added toward uh, like the ongoing tally that's against your advance, right? Yes. So you, you got an advance on, for instance, royalties, mm-hmm. but that's also an advance on things like money from subrights. Am I, misin- am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So for an author to earn out, how much is, are, how much are subrights a, 
a part of authors like yes my book earned out like as opposed to just selling because I think most people think that their book is going to earn out primarily but just by selling copies of their books in America mm-hmm. but I get the sense that for a lot of authors it's actually things like oh actually 10 other countries decided or 10 other territories were really excited about this book so we sold translation rights to mm-hmm. a bunch of different people is actually what helps their burnt book earn out is that true or am I misunderstanding it that? can be true but have you you've had books that have earned out based on the right sales like before they've even come out yeah but i can't say that's the that's not standard. the norm yeah <laughs> um that's a special case but there are sometimes when a particular book will do better abroad than it does in the us um that's like a you know one in a million kind of a thing but it does happen sometimes um, or like you said, if, if 10 other countries are really excited about something, they all decide that they must publish it in their language. I mean, obviously all books are different, but mm-hmm. I, I think that it's very easy f- to f- lose track of how much like people who don't spend a lot of time thinking about this just aren't even, this isn't even on the radar. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so it's less like we need to pin down exactly how much of your advance <laughs> is going to get paid back by rights. And more just like, I don't think people even know that that's a, aspect of it. Yeah, and uh, I'm, maybe it's interesting for you to know that rights deals are also set up in the same way as a traditional U.S. publishing contract is. So rights contracts are an advance against royalties as well. So it's not just a one-time thing. Um, you might see, you know, the p- foreign publishers are also tallying up the sales of your book in that language for that edition and you know, you might earn out your foreign advance and then you start earning royalties on that edition too. Man, that's so complicated and also really interesting. I hadn't quite thought about it that way, but of course it would have to work that way. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, uh, China gets to pay you $5,000 and then sell 3 million copies of your book. Without ever speaking to you again. That's it, that's all you get. That's That's a bad contract. (laughs) Right, don't let that happen. (laughs) Although that's a a, a good lead into one of the other questions that Gina had, uh, which was, so authors do sometimes try to negotiate this stuff for themselves mm-hmm. because they'll know a publisher in another country or have some sort of connection or someone will email them directly. So like, are there things that you feel like those people should be keeping in mind and, or stuff to look out for? Or, I mean, you could also be like, never do that absolutely in a million years. Like, I mean, as as the rights person here, I am, when I'm doing a license with someone else, I'm basically signing up to help them publish this book again, right? So they're going to do a new edition of your book, and they are going to do everything as far as publishing it from, you know, designing it, um, not not redesigning it, but, you know, their place in the layout, exactly, the translation. It's a comic, they have to re-letter the whole thing, Mm -hmm. maybe they have to redo all the sound effects because they don't exist in these languages. They're different, that's something that people don't often think about, but animal sounds, for example, or just even, like, boom, that is going to be different in different languages. Yeah, people maybe have to redraw a lot of word balloons because the text doesn't fit in them in translation. Mm -hmm. There's, like, extensive work that the foreign publisher will have to do to get the book to go in beyond just putting a copyright page in it. Right. And that's just for the printing of the book. So then they're going to also market um, the book in the same way. They're going to do publicity and promotions and we're going to help them do all that stuff. I mean, we're not 
helping with all the day-to-day details. The foreign publisher knows their market the best. They're going to take care of that stuff. But there's a lot of, you know, facilitating. You're, like, providing them with assets and yeah. sort of maybe sometimes getting things from the... Like, you're, you're yeah. a facilitator for all kinds mm-hmm. of things, I assume, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think some people who are going to be listening to this podcast are, you know, for example, self-publishing their own work mm-hmm. for, through Kickstarter or, you know, working with a press so small they don't actually have a rights agent. Mm-hmm. So are there things they should, like, watch out for in a deal? Um, you want to, like, be like, be prepared. This is a lot of work. Yeah, it sounds like that's kind of what you're starting out with is like, understand this isn't a one time thing. It's going to be an ongoing process. Right. I mean, it is. It's it's a new version, a new publication of your work. So just, you know, expect that there won't be a a, similar amount of work. I mean, of course, the book is is created, so you're not going to have to do that part again. Um, But the rest of it is definitely something that's happening, you know, kind of from the ground up, just in a different a different way. Are there like red flags that people should look out for when they're talking to people who are interested or? Um, I think really the important thing is like Gina said, when we first started talking, just make sure that they're going to put together something nice. You know, you want to, you want to make sure that it's a viable publisher, that they're, you know, they make quality books and they're going to do right by your work. So it sounds like also you were saying how these contracts actually look a lot like the contract that I, for instance, signed with for a second when, for my book. Mm-hmm. It, they're just sort of a contract within a... So basically people should just be looking out for the same stuff they'd look out for, for any other publishing mm-hmm. contract. Like, are you saying they have the right to publish your book forever and never give you any money? Like, <laughs> maybe don't sign that. Right. Yeah. yeah. In which case they can see our earlier episodes about... Um, <laughs> Did you guys Actually, no, have we, have we even gotten... No, we haven't contracts even gotten... Contracts is next. Yeah, stay tuned for a future episode in which we get into <laughs> shitty contracts. That's And better. good contracts. The whole kaleidoscope of contracts. Yes. I guess I should say there's a convention before we warn people away from this forever. There's a convention in British publishing where they, um, they do sign for very long terms, sometimes term of copyright. So that is... That is how British publishers do it. That is a standard thing. You're not going to get away with telling them no on that. So, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that's it's industry normal. standard for them. I did not know that. When you when you're like going home at the end of the year and you're like, okay, I'm like looking at all my titles. When you're looking at your books, how many territories or or countries of having uh, sold like one book to are you like this was the victory it's is it like two or is it 10 um are you like where where is that that scale tilted towards it depends on the kind of book yeah so um, for a graphic novel for a graphic novel um france is probably the most active market for graphic novels in translation that being said selling your book into France is not a guaranteed thing that's still exciting and, and a great thing but they're often the first people to respond they have a really lively dynamic graphic novel scene they have Angoulême which they've been hosting for many years you know they're just really active um, somewhere like Japan they have such a strong 
specific comic scene that they very, very rarely buy in translation. So if you sell a graphic novel into Japan, that's like... Amazing. Amazing. You got the gold medal. I was there a couple years ago, and it was so interesting which books were not only in translation there, but like were like the big book. Like mm-hmm. Black Hole was like everywhere while I was there for some, which is fine. Like it, <laughs> it's a good book, and like it was pretty popular here. But in Japan, it was like the number one English comic that was on display in the, all the stores that mm-hmm. it was in. That particular, like, okay, I guess you guys are really digging this sort of black and white horror scene. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's what you think when you think of Marion Cup. You think <laughs> crazy monster teens. That's fair. It is fair. Yeah. yeah. That's actually really fair. Yeah. <laughs> That's America all over. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, seriously. Uh, so, so basically, like, if, if your book gets kind of translated into two to five languages, that's, like, pretty you good. You did great. Yeah. 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 And, you know, occasionally you'll get a lot more than that, but that's usually if you win an award or, you know, something else that really skyrockets things. Um, and also, you know, there are some markets that are really tiny, like... The Netherlands, you know, if you sell your book into Dutch, that's awesome because they thought it was worthwhile to publish your book for a tiny audience, and that is really cool. Oh, that's really charming, actually. Yeah. I, okay, and if you can't answer this for whatever reason, that's fine, but have you? can you think of a, a specific book that you've worked with uh, that just was wildly popular as uh, in translation that in a way that you would not have expected like people sure are horny for this pig book or like whatever <laughs> I mean I'm just I'm sort of curious if you have like a, a some examples of or something. something that you would expect to I mean and that's a graphic novel like something that you're like this book did so well usually with graphic novels there are certain styles that work really well in America that don't work abroad like a lot of our kind of more cartoony styles just don't translate so something that is super popular here might not work you know it can be disappointing to authors I think to be a bestseller in the U.S. and not have any rights deals but it's just like some styles are just really hard to do and at the same time or on the other hand, um, some styles work really well for European markets, and so you might find like a runaway hit in France that barely sold any copies in the U.S., um, and that oftentimes has to do with the art. That's really interesting. So it's like that instant shelf reaction. Mm-hmm. Huh. So can you tell us a little about book clubs and book fairs. I know you mentioned them at the beginning and we've been kind of talking about translation all the time, but are are deals for them arranged differently than the way you would do a foreign rights deal? Um, yeah. This is complicated because actually right now our book club deals are going through our sales team, so Uh, I'm not even doing them. Um, So I don't know if I should even really go go into it. It's different at different publishing houses. Um, Because of the way book clubs work, they are, you know, often the publishing house is doing the printing. So they'll, like, run on an extra however many copies of the first printing that they're doing for Mm -hmm. the club. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, And so they can either be bundled under 
under sales because they're working with those accounts and they're figuring out how to make it work with the uh, print run that we're doing for domestic retailers. Um, or you can also put it under rights. How is it? I, I'm actually curious about this. How is it a, a rights thing? I think book clubs are such a bizarre creature that I have. I think Gina's explained them to me like 50 times, <laughs> and I can't because they're not the same. I mean, they're not obviously they're not a bookstore. Like they're not right. like a regular retailer for books. Mm-hmm. It's like an organization that is sort of. You know what? I'm not even going to pretend. I'm not even going to attempt to explain this. So like, how how would it be a rights issue as opposed to a sales issue? So PJ Library mm-hmm. or Junior Library Guild or Scholastic. Yeah. So those are all specifically book clubs. They're not sold in regular retailers for the public. You have to be like, essentially a member. And they are special editions. They're branded for that company that's selling them. They're specially printed. A lot of the times there are different specs, like a Scholastic edition of a book will physically feel different than they'll use different paper mm -hmm. they'll take off the flaps of the book they'll take off the spot lamination they'll put on more spot lamination (laughs) it's a different edition so it's like being translated into the language of that specific book club in a weird sort of way yeah sure yeah that's very interesting i hadn't really thought about it that way I'm sorry. Usually, a lot of these other episodes, we've been talking about things that I mostly know about, but this, I'm like, I don't fucking know anything. This is great. <laughs> like I said, it's a total, it's a niche of a niche. No, I love it. This is literally why we created this podcast. Ex- excuse our, like, super weird questions. No, We're just no, no. <laughs> It's interesting for me, too, because a lot of the, the questions that you have make total sense from a person who's not a rights person's perspective. But for me, it's like my day to day. So I'm trying to think of how to answer them without just blabbering away. No, it's fine. (laughs) So I also want to ask you about the rights fairs that you were talking about. Bologna, Frankfurt, Angoulême, London. So these aren't conventions like the Mocha Art Festival or SPX or New York Comic Con are conventions. So probably like a normal person wouldn't just kind of like walk in off the street and pay $20 and uh, like enjoy the rights fair no. with, and they would have like popcorn and stuff like that. I would not recommend What What happens at them? Give us the like window into the world of rights fairs. The rights people at the rights fairs, um, we do our schedules about four months before the fairs happen, I would say. And my schedule usually looks like um, meetings, 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 yeah. lunch meetings. Yeah. Oh, no, we don't have lunch. <laughs> Dinner meetings. <laughs> Drinks meetings. Um, but it is a meetings every half hour from, you know, nine to six. And then you have drinks with someone. You have dinner with some publishers. Is this usually scheduled in advance? Like, yes. or is it, is it, like, do you have a sign-up sheet at your table where people are, is it all oh, done no. before the convention even starts? <laughs> oh, no, we do it about four months ahead of, yeah. ahead of the fair. Uh, and there's usually about a, a week where you don't do anything but make your schedule for the fair. Um, so what's the advantage of doing this at the fair as opposed to, for instance, having like phone calls or email? Like, is it just- Or sub-agents going to talk to them? It's the FaceTime. You know, it's your relationship with that publisher, with that editor that you know, this book is perfect for them and you just have to sit them down and show them the book and, you know, 
convince them that it really is is the right thing for them. But I think a lot of publishing is really about the personal relationships that we all have. You know, it's such a small community. Even globally, it's a pretty small group of, of people out there. And we only see some of the foreign publishers a couple of times a year. You're emailing with these people every day to tell them that they are buying these books or they're talking to you about the cover or the contract. Mm -hmm. And you're like, perhaps it would be nice to like see you as a human. Right. Or even, you know, like our, our sub agents, as we were saying before, they are covering a couple of different lists. So they're sending, they talk to these publishers, all the foreign publishers, they talk to them all the time every day, multiple times a day, you know, they're on their phone, they're in their offices, but still to then go and see that American publisher that you see twice a year and have them say, no, really this book is perfect. You must have it. You must publish it. Um, I think that makes a really big impression on people, especially when you get to know one another's tastes and you start to really trust that kind of personal recommendation so you're putting like a face and a voice Mm -hmm. to this sort of eight million emails and packages that these people are getting like hi i'm a person and i personally would like to tell you about this cool book that we're yeah it's uh i think people really underestimate it sucks because it can be really inconvenient if you know for financial or whatever reasons it's difficult for you to travel but it's such a huge thing to just sort of be physically able to talk to people every once in a while in this industry. Yeah. Um, and what does the rights fair look like? And, you know, you go in the door, is it just mm. like meeting tables or do you have booths or? There are booths. Okay. Um, it's less raucous than Comic-Con, I would say, but there's still books on the walls. There are booths everywhere. There's so like a holiday snacks. house, you would have like a booth and it would have a sign and it would have mm-hmm. some book art, maybe. Book and art, lots of books on the shelves. Catalogs, I assume. Mm-hmm. Tables to meet with people. Mm-hmm. I always get the impression that it's a lot like a fancy Comic-Con, only nobody's directly selling anything. Right. You can't buy books, really, yeah, at no. the rights fair. That's why, that's why book con is so weird, because it's like they turn <laughs> an industry event into like a con, and it's like everybody's like, oh, wait, we have to sell things now. Huh. Yeah. So. yeah. Everyone's running around like looking for books and popcorn at the same time and <laughs> confusing. I feel like that was a whole lot about rights. Is there more stuff about rights that you want to talk about? Did we miss giant chunks of what your job actually is? Or like anything you want people to understand about your job? I think people don't realize how involved rights is, you know, from the time that the book is acquired, even before. When an editor is thinking about buying a book, you know, rights will have an opinion on whether it could work, whether it's something that we really want to try to go out to the world with and so even from that early stage and, and then even and there's an, a component there where you know if an editor is like okay I have this much money you know in my acquisition budget to buy this book you as a rights person could come in and be like people love these cartoony pigs all around the world this style is perfect I think I'm going to sell 10 countries on this up your budget you know, mm-hmm. you should definitely get this book. Yeah, rights can can help at that at that early acquisition stage, definitely. And then all the way through until after publication, when you're getting reviews, all of that stuff, rights is kind of there alongside the book the whole time. 
And I think that's something that is hard to see from the outside and, you know, something that makes rights also really fun to do. And you don't you don't like go away like your your rights expire, like when the terms of the contract expire with Mm -hmm. the, the publisher. But 10 years later, the book's still in print. You could still be selling rights to new countries and new territories. Yeah, actually, that's something interesting about Holiday House. We have a, an editor who's hired specifically to take a look at this backlist that we have and pick specific titles to revitalize and publish in new editions, things that maybe have been out of print since the 70s, the 50s. And so she and I are talking all the time about, you know, this one might have rights potential. So I think we should try to do a new edition, put it out out there again. It's the dream of an author, honestly, <laughs> to have somebody be like, you know what? I don't think this book has sold a sufficient number of copies. I'm going to like <laughs> take it out and dust it off. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Miriam. Thanks for coming to talk to us. Um, so can you tell us where people can find you or Holiday House, the company that you work for, if they wish to know more about it following this episode. Yeah, they can find us at HolidayHouse.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Thanks for listening to Graphic Novel TK. Next week, we'll be speaking with Lucy Nicely about how to go about being a professional cartoonist out in the world. Going to conventions, talking to people on Twitter, deciding whether or not to send that incredibly stressful email, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, We're really looking forward to it. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. Meetings, 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 lunch meetings.